Episode 33, Understanding Baptism, Part A, John's Baptism. Rethinking the Bible with Jack Pelham. Welcome to Rethinking the Bible. This is an audio podcast where we apply reality-based thinking to interpreting the Bible. Reality-based thinking is my name for a philosophy that seeks to make constant use of honesty, rationality, and responsibility in seeking out the reality of things while trying to avoid common errors. And for the record, I define reality as the state of things as they actually exist, as opposed to one's perceptions, beliefs, or wishes about them. And you should know, this is a serial podcast, so it's best if you start from episode one and work your way forward from there, because we lay some foundational principles up front, and you'll be lost later if you skip them now. Well, it's been a busy week. My uh, semester has come to an end, and I have uh, recovered nicely from that, and however, I'm getting... um, very busy working toward the fall already, and anticipating hopefully a very uh, busy work summer at the actual uh, money-paying day job. So uh, that is my hope, and I'm um, trying to make the most of the time in between um, now and then, so I can be ready to go to work and work hard and make lots of money all summer. Uh, so I I hesitate uh, and have been putting off doing this episode. I promised you I would do an episode on baptism after uh, episodes 31 and 32, because we touched on it so much there. And yet, of course, uh, it is quite an expansive topic. And uh, so that is uh, uh, difficult because I don't have much time. It's easier for me to talk about smaller topics here and there, uh, correct an error here and there, or something like that. Maybe to talk about themes that run through the Bible. Uh, But this really requires a lot of scholarly time to sit and Uh, work through all the passages about it and go where they lead. And so I've not been super excited to get into uh, doctrinal matters like this too much because they take a lot of time and attention, and I just don't have that much. Uh, However, uh, the topic of baptism uh, greatly concerns one of the themes of this whole podcast, and that is about how we think. because baptism is tied so much to repentance, uh, which simply means to change one's mind, to think a new way. And so I think it's highly relevant to what we're doing. And of course, uh, as I mentioned in the last topic, or one of the recent ones, while you can't talk about uh, subject A without getting into subjects B, C, and D that it touches on. So uh, it is the Bible study is a, is a sticky thing. You you can't just uh, step in, touch one thing, and, and not get stuck to other things along the way uh, sometimes. So that's a bit of my dilemma here. However, I'm going to plow through this. Uh, this will not be the exhaustive study, but I thought we'd start with John's baptism. And on this general theme, I've been thinking a lot about a passage we used to use when we'd study the Bible with people— um, who weren't Christians to try to get them to become Christians. And it's 1 Timothy 4.16, and, and we'd say, uh, th- this is the passage, watch your life and doctrine closely, persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself 
and your hearers. So here, you know, Paul is counseling Timothy that, uh, hey, this is a salvation issue, right? The way some people might put that. And it's, it's life and doctrine. And they were not only to be watched, but to be watched closely. Well, okay. And we would say, hey, if you had an airplane with two wings, uh, you know, a life wing and a doctrine wing, metaphorically speaking, obviously, uh, if you had such an airplane, uh, which wing could you afford to lose during flight? And of course, the answer is neither. And uh, we'd say, yay, you know, that's very good. Uh, so you got to watch your life and your doctrine. Well, obviously, uh, not obviously, I, I mean to say, a lot of the time we would um, be trying to get people to pay attention to their doctrine, to realize that, hey, a lot of what you believe from the Bible is uh, uh, not accurately interpreted, and so you need to go back and watch that more closely. And we give the Berean challenge, you know, the idea that they would check out every day in the Scriptures to see if what Paul said was true, and we would uh, laud that as a, as a good thing, as it was. And, um, but then some people, you know, you'd come back and say, well, look, your life needs uh, help here. You're doing some things in your lifestyle that are not according to God's way for people to live. They're not according to the image of God. And so, uh, although we didn't talk too much about the image, but, uh, the idea was there. And so we try to get people to watch both, which is particularly funny or ironic in the case of somebody who's not watching either very well. (laughs) So... Uh, for some, it was a tall order. For some, it was a little tweaking of their priorities and such. But we talk about both of these being important. Well, I've um, reflected on this for years. And I don't think that they are equally important. Although, um, it may be kind of like asking, well, which is more important, your uh, your heart or your liver? Uh, well, they do different things. Uh, but they do have uh, different, you know, they, they're both very, very important indeed. So I don't mean to discount doctrine, uh, but here's what I do mean. And this, of course, opens another can of worms uh, that I will uh, have to see how much I have to deal with it today, <laughs> how much of it I have to uh, talk through just so I can make my point. Uh, suppose that you were big into doctrine, and you wanted to know everything and know just how to explain it, what the rules are, what's the orthodox view that I'm going to defend, and that I'm going to call other people a heretic if they uh, disagree with it, right? Suppose you were like that, uh, but you cared nothing for your own life. You cared nothing about your way of life, about your character, about your virtues, your habits, uh, and you didn't care that you were... uh, when you were dishonest, you didn't care. When you were mean to people, you didn't care. When you were impatient, you didn't care, right? Well, uh, a person like that could turn into this doctrine watchdog who helps nobody, drives everybody off, and is constantly snapping at everybody for whatever their perceived errors might be. So uh, that obviously falls short of uh, what God had in mind for living in his image. And so that's the idea here, that both were to be watched closely, not only what you believe and what you teach, but how you live out your life. And we've talked about this extensively in the many hours of this podcast so far, that um, how you manage your thinking is uh, 
very important. And uh, that uh, decides how you're going to handle the Bible, how you're going to interpret what you read. And so when we get into baptism, uh, as much as ever, a person's interpretation of the scriptures is exceedingly important. And so it's very important, I believe, that we be honest and rational and responsible as we interpret uh, the scriptures rather than just, well, I've always heard that it means this, and that's what I'm going with, that's what my preacher says, and that settles it, you know, that sort of thing. And so I wanted to uh, remind you all of that kind of thinking, that we should be honest and rational and responsible as we interpret, uh, rather than thinking, no, my interpretation is right, period, end of story, and then I'll argue from there rather than you know, being able to rethink, the, rethink things, uh, which is particularly ironic since, as I mentioned already, uh, one of the key elements of baptism seems to be that of repentance, of rethinking. So how ironic, right, to have a non-rethinking uh, attitude about one's beliefs about uh, baptism. It doesn't seem to go together, so... Another uh, reason I have hesitated for this topic, I think I've already mentioned some, there are just so many tentacles. Uh, you're never really done studying the topic. Uh, one phrase you run into conjures up some other idea and some other passage that may be related and you have to go look and see, or not. <laughs> you can say, nope, not going to look and see. I don't care if this is related to that. I don't care if that passage over there would further inform my understanding of this passage. Nope, all I need is this one-liner, right? I'm reminded of Robert Frost in uh, one of his poems where he says, Knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted if I should ever return. And our Bible study tends to be like that a lot. In fact, uh, some weeks ago I talked about, or maybe months ago now, I talked about abandoned trails, things where we tell ourselves, oh yeah, I need to go look into that topic or this question, and we never get back to it. And uh, some of that, well, shame on us. But some of it also is, wait a minute, there are not enough hours in the average human life for a person to look into all of these things, um, even into, maybe into all the things that he or she knows should be looked into. <laughs> so I think that God knows this. I don't think it's a surprise to him. I don't think he's panicked. OMG. <laughs> Wait, how would he, oh my me? Is that what he would say? Uh, that where he's worried that, oh, they, I haven't given them enough time to figure out all of the Bible. And this is another reason I believe that if you had to pick between life and doctrine, well, the life better be the priority. You better see that you're managing your thinking in a godly way uh, because you cannot go learn everything that needs learning. Uh, although the area of human behavior is a bit more finite in its scope, and you could get a better handle on that. Well, okay, I've been kind, I've been fair to people, you know, I've been generous, I've been helpful, I've been not defensive, I've been honest, you know, these kinds of things. There are just not that many of those traits to be learned. And so um, I think we'd do better if we had to choose to be sure you're doing well with those traits so that you can be an honest thinker as you explore doctrine 
not all of which is easy. And if uh, we haven't demonstrated already that not all doctrine is easy uh, to your satisfaction, perhaps you haven't been paying enough attention, uh, or perhaps you just need to listen longer. So anyway, I'm also uh, reminded on this topic of uh, one type Abe Lincoln, of whom I am not a great fan. Uh, He was accused of being an expansionist, and uh, he was a very funny man. He had a great sense of humor and was very clever. And he says, well, that reminds him of a farmer who was accused of the same thing. And the farmer says, well, I'm not an expansionist. All I want is my land and what joins mine. And of course, uh, once you have what joins yours, then you'd have more land and you'd want what joins that too, right? It just goes on and on and on. And so it just simply reminds me of that joke in that way, that there is no end to Bible study. And you'll see some of that today. Uh, later in this episode, I will talk about it. So about baptism in general, I think there's roughly four different kinds that are talked about uh, in the New Testament. I'm not going to talk about what the Old Testament says about it uh, today, and, and I'll talk about why in a little while. But uh, here's what I see in the New Testament. I see John's baptism, which is what we're going to talk about today. Then I see the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I see baptism into Jesus' name. And then I see a figurative use of baptism referring to suffering. And I'm talking about where uh, Jesus says, I have a baptism to undergo. And he's uh, not talking about um, being immersed in water or anything like that. So of these four kinds, uh, John's is perhaps the easiest to understand. And it's covered in all four Gospels. Uh, And John or his baptism is mentioned eight times in uh, the book of Acts, too. So there's several mentions, and uh, I have not sat down to write a book about this. I have uh, just listed a bunch of passages. We're going to talk through them as uh, seems fit to me in the moment. So you're at the mercy of my whims, I suppose. Uh, Let's just read a few. Uh, First of all, uh, John the Baptist was a Jew. He had his ministry in the first century, and he came right before Jesus. And so let's just take a stab at some of these verses. Um, Matthew 3, verse 1, and we'll come back and cover this better later. But in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Okay, so Judea is uh, the Holy Land. It's the area around Jerusalem and that country that had been God had given to the Jews, had uh, separated out as... Uh, you know, his own people and, and all that. So uh, John was preaching. That's part of his ministry. He would actually preach to people. And he was uh, quite a barn burner with some of his sermons. Uh, we'll get a little hint of that. And he did it out in the wilderness of Judea. Now, this is interesting. He did not uh, go into Jerusalem and stand at the temple gates or something and, and preach to people. He did it out in the wilderness. So um, we'll consider that as we go. Uh, verse 3 or verse 6, rather, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, we're just getting bits and pieces here to put together into sort of a profile of what John's ministry was about. So the Jordan River, of course, that's a big deal. Uh, The minute you mention that, uh, do I need to go back through the scriptures and find out all about the Jordan and its significance? For instance, it was the river they had to cross to finally come into the Holy Land. Is that supposed to have anything to do with why John would baptize people there? 
Similarly, we mentioned he was doing it in the wilderness of Judea. Well, okay, that's that's the Holy Land. Is that significant? Why was he doing it there? Did he did he go off all around the world and do this? No, it was just there. All right. Another thing to notice, they were confessing their sins. So he's baptizing them, but they're also talking out loud about what they'd done wrong. Well, of course, not everybody will do that, but these people were doing that. So uh, let's make note of that as we go. Um, Mark 1, verse 4, uh, retelling some of the same things. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Okay, so uh, we see sins are being forgiven. We also see they were confessing their sins. Now we see there's repentance. That's the change of mind. So he's really going after people changing uh, what's going on inside, and he's doing it out in the wilderness. Mark 1, verse 5, the next verse, all of the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Okay, so when it says all the country of Judea, how should we take this? Does this mean, oh, every living human in the whole country went out there, uh, and then it mentions also all Jerusalem. Well, no, I don't, I don't think so. Now, we could be slavish literalists and say, well, the Bible says it, I believe it, and that settles it, right? <laughs> well, okay, but if you keep reading, you see, and we will certainly talk about this today, that not everybody got baptized uh, some of them thought it was fantastic. Some of them did not want any of that. So it cannot mean uh, what the literalist might uh, uh, insist that it means here. And yet it probably means a bunch of that was happening. Right, A bunch of people were going out. Uh, and, and it may mean like from all over in the area and in the city. Uh, so they were coming to him. Uh, in Luke 3, Verse 3, and he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Well, that river runs north and south through the Holy Land. And so does this mean that he went literally from border to border along the river? I'm not sure. Uh, did he mean he, does, does it mean that he covered a lot of that territory? That's maybe likely. But I uh, just want to give you some idea here, the scope of his ministry and what he did. Matthew 3, verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, now get this, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Well, this is, uh, you know, this is tough stuff here. He was not, oh, how nice of you to join us. You know, he was uh, letting them have it. Now, why was that? Well, if you don't know the story already, these people were already decidedly in Satan's camp. They were anti-God, uh, yet in the name of God. They were imposters acting as if uh, when they knew and should know that they were defying God in many ways. And so, boy, he lets them have it. And I guarantee you, uh, any sentimentalists in his crowd would have been offended by that. Well, I didn't like his tone. He was harsh with them, they would say. And yet here he is, and this man, I believe, was a prophet. And so he's saying these things. God put him there to say it. And yet I'm sure he would get in trouble with many people over taking that kind of tone, especially with uh, religious rulers, as many do today. Uh, Luke 3, verse 7, he said, Therefore, uh, to the crowds that came out to be baptized him, 
by him, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Well, here's, you know, we just read these same words from Matthew, and here is something to consider. Uh, John's baptism, there's some theme about fleeing the wrath that was to come. God was going to judge uh, the nation of Israel. This had been published to the nation, this information, again and again by the prophets, and now in increasing measure. And um, so they come out to him, and his first words to them are about the escaping this judgment, this wrath that was to come. This is sort of you know day of the Lord language here. So uh, the religious leaders, uh, at least these in particular, did not do well, yet they still came out to see what was going on, which is interesting. And we'll read elsewhere that they sent spies and such. Uh, Matthew 3.11. John said to them, uh, I baptize you with water for repentance. Okay, so it was in water he was doing it, you know, in the Jordan River. And I have never seen a case that he was not dunking people under the water, if you're wondering about how he did it. Though some may want to argue that. Uh, I would not, I'd be surprised if nobody argues that anywhere. But it looks like he was, you know, dunking them in down under the water. Uh, anyway, that that has a lot to do with just the meaning of the Greek word baptizo. So uh, anyway, but going on, uh, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Well, okay. Uh, we're going to get into uh, Jesus' baptism later and, you know, the baptism in the name of Jesus and uh, baptism of the Holy Spirit later, but I simply want to point out here that John is pointing ahead to Jesus. So he's telling his own audience who's come out to see him, look, here's what I'm doing. I'm baptizing you for repentance in water, uh, but somebody else is coming. Well, this is a theme of John's ministry, uh, as we'll see shortly. He was pointing the way to Jesus. So he was out getting people's attention and uh, getting them ready for the arrival of Jesus, which was imminent. Uh, Mark 1, verse 8, I've baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Okay, so John uh, is very interesting here. He is quite willing to play second fiddle. He is not, uh, he doesn't seem to be bitter. That, oh, well, Jesus has the superior ministry to mine. Something bigger yet will happen after I'm done with my part here. Uh, he seems to be straightforward about this, which, of course, you would expect if he's living in the image of God. Luke 3.16, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. This is a little variation from before where it says uh, not worthy to carry. Uh, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Okay, so we'll get into that later, what that means. But here's John, you know, pointing to Jesus in all these three accounts here. Um, Matthew 3.13. Uh, Jesus came from the Galilee to Jordan, uh, to the Jordan, to John, to be baptized by him. So here we see, you know, they're in the River Jordan. And uh, we'll talk about this a little bit more, at least in, in, in the Jesus episode here. But there are some myths about um, what all might have been going on in the spiritual world regarding this baptism and such. They're quite interesting. I'm not sure if they're convincing, but uh, we can look at that a little bit too. 
uh, Mark 1, 9, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Matthew 3, 14, John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you and do you come to me? So again, here you see that humility. <laughs> and it's very interesting. John was given this mission by God to go out and fuss at people and uh, to get them to turn their heads around, to, to change their minds, uh, particularly in preparation for Jesus. Well, a lot of people, if you put them in charge like that, they're going to turn into monsters. And yet, uh, <laughs> when Jesus walks up, John doesn't say, well, hey, Lord, uh, you see me out here doing my thing, right? Uh, you know, getting these people in line and all that, and really pounding on them. Uh, that's not his thought. Not, hey, look at me being the faithful servant and the awesome preacher and so forth. He's basically like, what are you doing here? Um, boy, I need to be baptized by you. So this doesn't really make sense to me. Well, this is fantastic in my view, his attitude about it. Uh, John, I mean, Matthew 3.16. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up out of the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. Well, John's the one who, who baptized him. You know, so he was there at this, this huge event. Uh, Luke 3.21. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized uh, and was praying, the heavens were open. Okay, so that's a really big deal. This is John's ministry. This is obviously the highlight day of it when he baptized Jesus. And um, so here's a guy who, you know, the heavens were opened to him. Well, what does that mean? Well, oh boy. Okay. We basically need to go plowing through the Old Testament uh, and some of the New Testament to find language like this and discover that uh, apparently there were things that were viewable in the skies, but not viewable all the time, or at least not to everybody most of the time, but on special occasions. Uh, things would become visible that were not always visible. And so this is a fascinating topic. To me, I think it runs back uh, a long time. I think it runs back as far as uh, Deuteronomy 4.19, where he's talking about don't worship the things you see in the sky. And I do believe, unlike uh, many, that uh, that particular passage about the, um, the sun and the moon and the stars, I don't believe that's a, a literal reference to the literal things we see in the sky today with the naked eye. I believe that was a reference to um, angelic beings who God had running certain roles in overseeing the earth and such. And so, uh, and I can make a case for that if I haven't already. can't remember exactly what I've said so far. However, uh, the heavens might be have, have to be open for you to see such things. You remember when Stephen is being stoned, and he looks up, the heavens are open for him, and he sees God at Jesus, I believe, if I remember the, the details right. So this was not always open, and yet on this occasion it was open. That's a big deal for John and everybody else who was there, of course. Uh, Luke 3.12, the tax collectors came to him also to be baptized and said, A teacher, what shall we do? So look, he's considered to be a teacher, a rabbi. And that puts him in a position of power, and yet he doesn't seem to have been the uh, arrogant sort. 
So uh, later in Matthew 11, Jesus is talking about John the Baptist. He says, truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen or there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Well, my, that's quite an endorsement. And then he goes on to say, uh, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Well, that's intriguing. And this is something we'll get into some other day about uh, who's in the kingdom of heaven, who's not. Uh, apparently he's talking like John was not in the kingdom of heaven. So what was that all about? Well, that's very interesting, and we're just so not going there today. Uh, so let's see. Uh, I'm, I'm reading through which one should I read to you and, and which ones to skip. Um, well, I'm, I'm at Luke uh, 7 now. I'm going to hold that for the end because it's particularly fascinating, and I love the passage. Uh, so getting into the Gospel of John, I've dealt with the first with the three uh, synoptic Gospels sort of all together uh, harmonized, but now we're in the Gospel of John. So they asked John, uh, this is one John 1, 25, then why are you baptizing if you're neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? And so, you know, he was taking heat from the people, from some of them. Uh, John answered, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. And of course, we've already read some of that language. He's talking about Jesus. Uh, these things took place uh, in Bethany across the Jordan where he was baptizing. I, uh, John 131, I myself did not know him. That's John didn't know Jesus, but for this purpose, I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. So again, this is his job to get people ready for Jesus. And that's just quite interesting to think through that because we get an, we already get introduction to Jesus in other ways. Uh, of course, his miraculous birth and the sojourn to Egypt and all that happens uh, quite a number of years before his ministry starts. So here's John basically uh, advertising to the world, hey, it's getting ready, he's coming, uh, it's imminent. Uh, so uh, he says, I myself did not know him. This is in John 1, But he who sent me to baptize with water and said to me, he on whom you see the Holy Spirit descend and remain, this is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Uh, John 3, verse 23, John was also baptizing at Enon near Salim. And... Um, so here we get one particular place where he was. And it says, because water was plentiful there and people were coming uh, and being baptized. Well, this is probably evidence that he was immersing people because uh, any river has enough water to sprinkle somebody or to you know, get water in a cup or a pitcher and pour it over their heads as um, other practices do. So he's probably uh, immersing people. And that's the way he did it. So uh, some other references here to you know where he was baptizing and such. But then listen, uh, three times in Acts, somebody sizes up something about John. In Acts 13, 24, it sizes up this way. Uh, concerning Jesus, it says, Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. So again, we see that he is, you know, preparing the way for Jesus to come and all that. But also we see what was the scope of his audience. It was to all the people of Israel. Uh, if you recall, one time 
a lady approaches Jesus with a question. He says, well, hey, you know, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. She was uh, not uh, an Israelite. And so that kind of language, well, here uh, John was sent to prepare only the people of Israel for Jesus' coming. So we need to understand this, how the, how the plan worked. Of course, you know, later, uh, Jesus told his apostles they would be his witnesses um, in Jerusalem and in Judea and then to the ends of the earth. So uh, it was a few years in, from what I understand, in Acts when they finally took the gospel to the Gentiles and the nations elsewhere. Uh, so for this time, it had been only for Israel. Uh, verse uh, 25, the very next one is interesting. This is Acts 13, 25. As John was completing his work, he said, Who do you suppose I am? I am not the one you were looking for, but there's one coming after me whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. Well, we read that already, but it's interesting here that it tells us that this was when John was completing his work. So we see that his ministry was only for a time. It was temporary. Uh, we do read that Jesus and his apostles were uh, baptizing, and then it clarifies that it was only his apostles. They were doing this uh, during the same time as John, and that's very interesting. But apparently this baptism of repentance was only a temporary thing. And of course, if his job is to prepare people for uh, the coming of Jesus, well, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, Paul says in Acts 19, verse 4, he sums it up this way. John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. So I think that's a really good characterization. It seems to fit with all the passages we've read and all the others, too. So let's go on to Matthew 3 and read the narrative here. This will certainly include some of the verses we just read. But now that you sort of know what to look for, let's read this. I'm going to start at verse 3, and I'm going to stop when I feel like it. Uh, chapter 3, verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So there's some eminence language. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, now that's, uh, that's Matthew writing that. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, and now he's going to quote Isaiah. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Okay, so Matthew just quoted Isaiah. Well, this is Isaiah 40. Are we supposed to go down that rabbit trail and look into all that and say, well, why would he quote that passage? What all is there? Now, if you're typical, your answer to that question is going to be, no, no need for all that. Let's just get on to verse 4. Right? <laughs> and so... Uh, and it's got me questioning. I, th I think I'll go into it n later. I'm not going to go into this right now at Isaiah 40. I'll continue with this um, context in Matthew 3. So in verse 4, Now, John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Okay, How, what are you supposed to do with that? Well, if you know the Old Testament, you have bells going off in your head. Ding, 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 ding. Uh, because the description here is reminiscent of the description of Elijah. 
And so is that significant? Oh, you bet. Well, how much should you go learn about that? Uh, nothing. That may be the typical answer, right? No, I do not need my understanding of John to be enlightened in the least by an understanding of Elijah, right? <laughs> so, uh, and again, we're not going to go there right now. Uh, we could never finish this passage if we tra track down all these things uh, as we see them. Okay, so verse 5, Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptizing. Uh, they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he was coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Okay, so do you get the idea that the fire here is a good thing or a bad thing? Uh, some people upon reading, um, oh, let's see, where is it here? Oh, okay, uh, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. That's the end of verse 11. Uh, some might read that and say, oh, well, this is good. This is like, uh, you know, the fire of the Spirit, like how, how Paul wrote to Timothy, don't put out the Spirit's fire, right? And they may be looking for some way to understand it that, uh, makes the fire a good thing. Uh, however, uh, if you um, look at it in the context that John gives you, you can see it's not a good thing. He's already said in verse 10, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Well, obviously this tree is not considered to be useful because it's not putting out good fruit. And what will be the end of the tree? It goes into the fire after being cut down. All right. And so then again, he makes this analogy that uh, the wheat, the good stuff gets gathered into the barn, but the chaff, the bad stuff, the useless stuff will be burnt uh, with unquenchable fire. So this idea, and, and of course, we'll talk about more of this once we get into the talk about Jesus and baptism, that he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. I heard it put like this once, and I think it's a pretty good uh, comparison. Imagine a teacher at the beginning of a semester telling the students what to expect from the class and saying, uh, in this class, you will get passing grades and failing grades. And how would they take that? Well, some of you will pass, some of you will fail. And the, um, the idea here was that, the, well, this is put forth the same way. So not everybody, uh, no one in the class both passes and fails. It's some of you will pass, some of you will fail. And that seems to be what he's talking about here. So if you just want to camp out on the one verse, he'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire, you might get a completely different impression from if you read the whole context of this. Now, what different impression would we get? 
if we were to uh, go read all about uh, about Ezekiel, I'm not Ezekiel, I'm sorry, but Elijah, if we were to go read all of that, would that further inform our understanding of John's ministry here? And then uh, I'm going to keep going before I get off on that trail. Uh, in verse 13, and again, we're in Matthew 3. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John uh, to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Uh, so then he consented, John did. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So there is the Matthew 3, and I want to go over to Luke 3, and uh, let's read that about John. Uh, starting in the beginning, uh, verse 1. In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, and Herod being Tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, Tetrarch of the region of uh, Aturea and Trachonitis, I have not practiced these names, <laughs> and Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. You see, I said earlier he was a prophet. Well, here you go. This is your typical uh, prophet language. The word of God came to somebody. So going on in verse 3, he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, uh, and this is more of what than what Matthew shared, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh will see the salvation of God. Well, okay, that's quite a mouthful right there. That's um, just a couple of verses from Isaiah 40. And already, I think without going to Isaiah 40, I can show you some of the, um, I only want what joins mine, I, you know, how way leads on to way. Uh, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Okay, well, John was preaching out in the wilderness, uh, you know, fulfilling the prophetic uh, profile set for him. And what was the message? Well, prepare the way of the Lord, make its paths straight. Uh, so this is some sort of, you know, honorific thing that, hey, Jesus is really something. You need to be ready to uh, accommodate him. And then he goes on, every valley shall be filled. Well, what's that about? And every mountain and hill shall be made low. Okay, well, most of us, that leaves us just sort of, you know, like a deer in the headlights, just stunned. Uh, okay, <laughs> what does that mean? Uh, and the crooked shall become straight. Well, the crooked what? Crooked people? Crooked order of things? The crooked law? The the messed up society, you know, what exactly is he talking about? Uh, and the rough places shall become level ways. Well, okay. And then all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Well, there's, you know, 10 questions in all of that that all need to be checked out. Uh, for example, 
uh, every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low. Okay, well, is this a literal reference to literal events? Uh, would um, Is he saying that, oh, when Jesus comes, all the mountains of the earth will somehow be made flat and all the valleys filled in, so the earth is just one continuous sphere with a regular surface? Well, somebody might think that. Of course, uh, if you're a literalist and if you don't know the Old Testament and the rest of the scriptures, it would be very easy to think, oh, that's okay, that's interesting. And then I would ask you, well, what would be the reason for that? If Jesus is coming, the Son of God, the exact representation, the, the complete image of God is coming, and in preparation for him, uh, you should expect that all the geography, the topography of planet Earth will be set at zero. So it's all, you know, equal uh, height. Everything is as smooth like the, the surface of a, of a pool ball. Uh, what would that have to do with things like repentance and being spiritual and living in the image and loving God with all your heart and loving your neighbor? Well, it would have nothing to do with all of that. And you... If you're a thinker, you'd be scratching your head at that conclusion. Because, well, why would this be? What would that have to do with it? Uh, okay, so it, it brings up the question of valleys and mountains. Well, this language is all over the Bible, and it's a study I, one of the reasons I've been hesitating about this episode was, well, do I have time to get into that? I am fairly convinced from incomplete study that a lot of times the language about mountains is used figuratively to talk about seats of power, about kingdoms, about uh, angelic powers and uh, powers and principalities and rulers of the air and things like this. You'll find that language a lot. And so if that's how it's being used here, he's talking about the evil powers being brought to nothing and the low and humble being lifted up. Now, is that message part of the theme of the Bible? Well, you bet. In fact, it's, it's a lot of the theme of Jesus' own ministry, his own preaching. And so I think that's likely what's going on here, but uh, it would take me many hours to go search all of that out in the Old Testament and make a case for you, and you know, New Testament too, of course. So, uh, you know, that same idea with the cro crooked becoming straight and the rough places becoming level ways, well, this may very well be uh, simply an example of uh, the Hebrew parallelism, where they're going to tell me a thing and then tell me it again in a different way, and here even a third time in a different way. That very likely may be what's going on here. I don't know that for certain. And then it says, all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Oh boy, okay, well, what does that mean? Is <laughs> Oh, the universalists would jump on this. See, I told you everybody was going to be saved. Uh, but is that the only explanation of this? Well, no, of course not. In fact, we, you know, if, if you go to Jesus giving his apostles what people call the Great Commission, that they would go not only to uh, Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the world, or, you know, but to the ends of the world also. And so the idea that all flesh, this could be that n not only 
will the Jews, but also the rest of the nations, see the salvation of God. They're going to get to hear about it. They're going to get to hear the message of Jesus and so forth. could very well mean that. It does not have to mean, oh, every human is going to uh, be saved and have eternal life and go to heaven and live there forever. So uh, in verse 7, going on, he said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Now, this is interesting here because it says, uh, when we read this in Matthew, he was saying it to the uh, Pharisees and the Sadducees, whomever had come out, to those leaders. But here it just says to the crowds that came out. So this is very interesting because, did he say it? Well, sure. Did he say it to people who came out? You bet. Well, here in this case, uh, it in, in the case of Matthew, we see it was more exclusive than just to everybody, but Luke doesn't bother to make that distinction here. So uh, there's nothing wrong with what Luke says, but Matthew was more specific about the one particular detail. I hope that makes sense. And, and, and we should bear that in mind as we uh, study Scripture all over the place, that you can't assume because the detail is not given that the detail did not exist. So you kind of have to be smart and responsible about things like that. So he goes on, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And okay, so you can tell yourself, I repent, I change my mind, but you have to bear fruit in keeping with that. Imagine a diet. Oh, I'm going to start a diet. Well, yay. Now are you going to uh, keep with that and follow through with it? Well, it's very easy not to, to do that. And that, of course, becomes fruitless, right? He says, uh, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Now, why would they say that? Well, they would take great pride in being God's chosen people, even if they were not acting like God's chosen people. This was their mistake. It was their cognitive error. It was a mental mismanagement where they were not managing all the facts, but only part of them. Well, hey, we're, we're God's chosen people. See, you know, we're circumcised. We live in the Holy Land. We are the cat's meow. And uh, he would say, no, don't go there. And, you know, a, a really good um, thinker learns how to cut off the others at the pass and to tell them in advance, you know, and don't think this. You know, Jesus did this often. He'd say, uh, you know, you've heard it said this, but I tell you that. And then he'd say, don't say to yourselves this or that or the other thing. <laughs> so he knew in advance what kind of uh, games they were going to play in their minds, and he cuts them off. Uh, Do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Well, what's that about? And I don't know exactly. I, I, I think it's very likely that there are river rocks there by the Jordan, as many, many rivers have. And so when he's saying these stones, it may well be that he's referring to that. Now, is this a reference to an Old Testament passage? I have not stopped to look this one up. It could very well be that. Uh, or it could just be some off-the-cuff um, metaphor that he's making that, uh, look, you guys are nothing. You're not special. God can make children of Abraham out of anything. In fact, uh you would see if you stick around the Bible story that he did indeed take Gentiles and make children of Abraham out of them. So is this what that's about? 
I would like to look into that some more. So he goes on with something that's familiar from the Matthew account. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees, this idea of eminence of judgment. Uh, Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds ask him, what then shall we do? So they were really getting this. In fact, you find the same passage in uh, the same thing in Peter's, in response to Peter's sermon in Acts 2. He said, brothers, what shall we do? So this is, an, this is what you get out of people who are duly convicted by a convicting message. They're humble and they say, oh boy, okay, what do I need to do here? And when you don't get that from people, you can probably bet that they are not duly convicted as they should be. So he says to them, verse 11, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. Whoever has food is to do likewise. So think about the remedy here. These things are about people not sharing who need to cut it out and start sharing. So they needed to be, to have their hearts softened back toward, hey, you're a human among fellow humans who sometimes need help and such. So they had gotten away from that. Why was that the remedy here? Isn't that very interesting? Of all the things you might imagine he would give as an example, he gives that one. And what can we learn from that? Going on in verse 12, tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? Again, same question. And he said to them, uh, Collect no more than you were authorized to do. So here they were cheating. Of course, they're making profit by over-collecting. And so he tells them, you need to cut that out. Now, did they heed it or not? That remains to be seen, right? Uh, Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, but be content with your wages. So again, you know, don't put your own selfish needs over uh, the needs of others over what is just and fair and such. Uh, Going on in verse 15, as the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts uh, concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Well, you know, this is not the picture of Jesus that so many Christians today want to paint. John paints him as an imminent judge who's getting ready to make some eternal decisions about the fate of people. And this is so not how so many today want to think about Jesus. Uh, yet this John's a prophet. God sent him to, to give this very message, right? Uh, so we have to decide, well, are we going to listen to God and John? Or are we going to listen to somebody's fluffy idea of the gospel that comes out of some pulpit somewhere? So going on, verse 18. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. You know, this is there's also a parallel here with Peter's sermon. With many other words, he warned them, right, in Acts 2. Uh, But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, 
and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. So here John gets uh, persecuted for what he's done. He's mistreated and he's killed, as you may well know. Uh, now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form, like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. So Jesus begins his ministry after that. And there is some interaction with John uh, for a little bit. Uh, this part where Herod um, arrests John, this did not happen immediately uh, you know, after Jesus' baptism. So anyway, this is, the, um, this is what we get uh, about John in general. There's certainly more I could read. We could look more into the Elijah connection and what all was going into that. And that would certainly be worth it. Um, however, and we certainly could look more into Isaiah 40 because there's eschatological language in there. Again, of course, you have eschatological language coming out of John's mouth when he's talking about uh, judgment and the fire and, and the barn being filled up with the good fruit and all that. If you go into uh, Isaiah 40, you're going to see uh, other talk that expands your, your understanding. It expands the scope of your awareness as you consider John and his ministry. And you have to ask yourself, what all did Matthew know and Luke know that they would point us toward Isaiah 40? Because the well-read Jew of the first century, this would have triggered lots of things in his or her mind. And so if we don't know those things, how can we understand what those Gospels are telling us? And, well, you can't. And I believe this is how the churches have got to where they are. You know, it's, a, it's quite a mess. So I told you I wanted to look into Luke 7. Uh, I want to read an extended passage here about John the Baptist. Um, he had, this is later, he had come before he's arrested, but still later. Uh, he had come to Jesus. Some of his messengers had come, and they had a discussion, which is interesting. But I want to pick it up here in, in Luke 7, verse 24. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? And no, John was dressed in camel's hair. Uh, so it says, Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers uh, rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. Now, I want to stop here. Uh, there's a few more verses to read, but I want to stop here. 
this is very curious. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, or another version might read, they justified God. Well, that's awkward to us because we think about God justifying us, right? But uh, here, they're, they're declaring that God is right. He is just. He is fair. The word in Greek is dikaioo, uh, and it means to declare that something is just or right or, or proper, and this sort of thing. And so how did they declare that God was just? It says, comma, having been baptized with the baptism of John. Well, we haven't been told so in the, in the uh, narration so far, but we've told it was a baptism of repentance. It was to prepare the way for Jesus and all that. But here's this other thing. These certain people, when Jesus is talking about John and that John was great and he was sent from God, they had to speak up and uh, in some general way declaring that, yes, and God is just. Well, wait a minute. The God who sent the prophet to tell you all to repent is just? Yeah, God was right. We needed to repent. These are people who are thankful for John after the fact. They're not home stewing. Yeah, that guy, you know, standing out there calling us vipers and stuff. You know, the gall of that guy, you know, where does, who does he think he is, right? They're not doing that. They're saying, John was right. I needed to repent. This is what humble people do. This is what people do who are interested in living in the image of God. They're going to say, yeah, that thing I was doing, that was not in the image of God. I'm so glad that I got out of that. I'm so glad somebody corrected me and so forth. And so it says, these people uh, declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. So let's get this. This is one of the most important verses we've ever read. They didn't want this baptism of repentance. They were in sin. Duh. Uh, the, Jesus attacked these guys constantly. They were sold out to their sinful lives and much in need of repentance. But it says they rejected the purpose of God for themselves. Well, what is the purpose of God for people's selves? It's that they should live in the image of God. Walk humbly before the Lord, you know, love justice and mercy and all that sort of thing. That's the purpose. They rejected this. John goes on. To what then shall I compare? Oh, I'm sorry. This is Jesus going on. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation and what are they like? And this is one of my big questions. What kind of people are we? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. For John has come eating no bread and drinking no wine. And you say, he has a demon. Well, the son of man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. 
All right. So I'm going to go on in a second with one last verse. But think about this. This happens even today as people play the game in politics. If your opponent is right about what he's saying, but he says it wrong and uses bad grammar, well, what do you do? Well, you go after the grammar. Huh, that guy doesn't even understand proper English, right? Uh, well, okay, what if he's, um, what if he is exposing some sort of crime or some conspiracy and he gets one fact wrong? Oh, you go after the fact, right? And, and you say, look, this guy's an idiot. You know, he can't even do this right. He's just looking for whatever. Well, what if your opponent does nothing wrong? Well, I didn't like his tone, right? Or, well, look at, I mean, this guy obviously is biased against tax collectors and, and sinners or against Pharisees or, you know, whoever he's talking to. You just look for something and you, and you run with it. And that's exactly what Jesus is pointing out here. That look, they criticized John saying he had a demon because he didn't eat and drink as they do. And yet Jesus comes eating and drinking as they do, and they say, look, he's a glutton and a drunkard. Well, this obviously is very stupid. Because if Jesus is doing the same activity they themselves do, well then, uh, they too would be gluttons and drunkards by the same judgment. So it's hypocritical, it's a double standard, it's double-minded, it's all kinds of wrong, and yet this is what kind of people they were. But Jesus finishes out with this one-liner, and I love this. Uh, and I've always thought this was awkward for years and years. I never understood it until very recently. So he's going on. He says, well, look, John came uh, not eating or drinking, and they say this. Jesus came eating and drinking, and they say that. And then he, he sums it up. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Another translation might say wisdom is justified by her actions or something like that. Uh, well, what's this about? Well, remember, we looked back in verse 29, when all the people heard this, Jesus talking about John, uh, and the tax, tax collectors too, they declared Jesus, our God, just. And that word was dikaioo, dikaioo in the Greek. Well, that's the same word used here when it says, yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Well, they had declared God just, and Jesus is saying, look, some of you people fuss about John, you fuss about Jesus about me, you know, that is, uh, yet wisdom is justified by her children, by all her children. Okay, so what's going on here? This is loaded. He's saying, you people are not my children. You are not the children of God. You don't justify God. You don't declare him just. You declare yourselves just. You walk away from John's baptism of repentance as if you don't need to repent. You complain about John, you complain about Jesus, whom John said was so superior that what are you doing here to be baptized by me? But they didn't have John's attitude about Jesus. Uh, you know, they would eventually kill him, right? So wisdom is justified, declared just, by all her children. You remember Jesus saying things like, my sheep know my voice. I think he's in the same ballpark here. And what I love about this is he pulls in this word wisdom all of a sudden in the middle of this chapter that hasn't used that word. Well, why is that? Do you remember Proverbs 8, where the whole chapter is about wisdom? Wisdom calls in the loud in the streets. 
Why do you simple ones love your simple ways and all that? Well, that's Jesus. That is, he's the one that's being talked about in that chapter. And here he is literally in the streets talking to people, and they are rejecting him, these particular ones, not all of them, fortunately, but these were those rejecting him. And he says, wisdom is justified, declared right, by all her children. There are no children of mine who don't think I'm right. You will not find in that heavenly Jerusalem, that holy city, one person who thinks that Jesus and God are not just and right and fair. You'll find a lot of people in the streets who don't think they are. And you'll find a lot in the churches who they can't handle. Just like we talked about, you know, how somebody, how a sentimentalist would hear John's message, you brood of vipers, and say, well, that's not right. He shouldn't be talking to people like that. That's just rude. You know, that's harsh. Well, it wasn't to John. It wasn't harsh to God. It wasn't hard to, harsh to Jesus, who said similar things. Did he not? Right? So people get their own view of what God should be like. They're like, yeah, we're not going to let anybody be different from our view. We'll just ignore that part or explain it away somehow into something else. So here you have John who is coming to prepare the way for Jesus. He came only to Israel, uh, as did Jesus. And his message was one of repentance and forgiveness of sins. So think about that. Uh, so many will want to say that, well, you can't have forgiveness of sins before you have Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. And I suppose I would have said that at one time, but I certainly would not say that anymore. As you've heard me say before, I think God is the forgiving sort. And so here he sends John with this message, and it doesn't say it was a baptism of the hope of future repentance, or I mean of forgiveness, but it just says simply it was a baptism of forgiveness. So are we to think this is some sort of already but not yet thing? Okay, you guys got baptized by John. Yay for you. That's great. And uh, good news, you're going to get forgiven, just not yet. I mean, it's, it's good. It's already, but no, you, you can't really get forgiven until Jesus comes and makes a sacrifice for you. You see? Well, how could that be? I think we should explore taking it at face value. That yes, they repented and God said, okay, I wiped the slate clean. Now, the same John would tell them, you need to go on and produce fruit in keeping with repentance. So that was important too, not just the repentance, but the bearing of fruit. Uh, in accordance with that uh, repentance. And so many want to miss that. Oh, I had this great religious experience. I felt awesome. I, I just felt so humbled and grateful and, you know, whatever the feelings might have been. And it was fantastic. And I knew it was God on the other end of this thing. And I knew he was working in my heart. Yeah, okay. Um, that must have been something. And so what about now? What happened after? Did you keep 
uh, bearing fruit in keeping with that repentance. Well, no, I actually felt like I sort of backslid for a long time after that. Well, okay, <laughs> right? So, you know, again, I guess we could go back to Watch Your Life and Doctrine closely. You know, you, you say you had an experience, but you didn't watch your life thereafter and keep it on the straight and narrow. Yeah, I guess I, guess I didn't, right? <clears throat> the message of John and Jesus and the apostles and the prophets in the New Testament was so remarkably consistent they all called for this way of life to be lived out uh, for the works that were prepared in advance for the children of God to do. It was uh, a very consistent theme. They were remarkably unified in this, and starting with John before Jesus ever got here. Now, a lot of Christians get—I haven't developed a term for this. I probably should. They get some sort of jealousy, like uh, guarding the hen house kind of— um, like, for example, when you want to talk about the golden rule and they're like, yeah, yeah, that's great. That Jesus taught the golden rule. And you're like, well, yeah, he did. And it's fantastic. And of course, he's right about it. And they're like, amen, bro. <laughs> and then you say, but, you know, a bunch of people throughout history, wise men from different cultures have taught the same thing. Some of them are on record with it before Jesus said it. Well, then they, they get all defensive about that. Well, that, no, that, no, that... That must have been something else. It might have sounded similar, but, you know, really, it's not the same thing. Jesus' version is superior to theirs. Mm, I don't think that's very fair and honest and um, responsible, rational. A have you actually gone to study what they wrote? Well, no, but I'm sure if I did, I could find something wrong with it. Well, could it be that there are things about reality that humans can notice with reflection? And that they could say them out loud and say, look, I noticed a thing. <laughs> Life goes better when you uh, treat others the way you want to be treated. What's to keep a person from realizing that and saying it out loud, putting it in writing? Well, nothing, right? And, but a lot of Christians feel like they're getting robbed somehow if you point to some good thing in the world that didn't come straight out of the mouth of Jesus or off the pages of the Bible or something like this. And I think the same thing if you tell them, hey, look, God forgave these people before Jesus made the sacrifice. And that really sticks in their craw. They don't like that. So they need some way around that. We don't know. We don't want to listen to that fact from the Bible, Jack. We want to ignore that and keep on going that no, there's no forgiveness without a a, uh, a sacrifice from Jesus. Now, it could be that um, this forgiveness was somehow conditional or something like that. Maybe somebody could make a case for that, but I've never heard anybody tackle this. I've never heard it talked about much. It is rather obvious uh, that the plain meaning of the language seems to be that they were forgiven at John's baptism and did not have to wait for baptism into Jesus to be forgiven for their sins to date. So, that's a very interesting thing that um, deserves to be listened to along with the rest of the scriptures. So I think that's about as far as we'll go today. We certainly could do more and more and more with this, and perhaps we ought to, but you know that I am juggling time constantly, and so I can't do everything. Uh, perhaps you, if, if I'm of use to anybody, perhaps it could be more for a spot check here and there. You know, you learn 
something from what we cover in one thing, and that helps you go on your own to develop more of your own understanding from your own study, or you learn some hermeneutical tip, and you're like, oh, I should apply that over here too, you know, things like that. That's perhaps more uh, what I can do uh, with my limited time than to be Mr. Exhaustive Bible Study Guy. So going on from here, uh, we will look at these other three kinds of baptism. I'm not certain I will do them all in a row in these episodes. I may well skip around a little bit and do some other things first. And there are certainly some very important other topics that I am still uh, really itching to get into. Uh, One of them is about um, how um, about God's way. And this word that we run across it practically every episode, I haven't talked much about it, but the idea, it's its quite related to the image that you're supposed to live in God's image, not your own, not somebody else's, not Satan's image, you know, whatever. Uh, but God's, well, the same thing, you're supposed to, to live in God's way. You know, talk about watch your life and doctrine closely. I really want to talk about that. I've been dying to do that episode really since the second week of the podcast and didn't get it done then, I don't think. I'd have to go back and look and see. Again, you can tell I'm a little uh, slipshod with uh, some of the uh, the diligence in uh, keeping all this together and prim and proper and such. So uh, I also want to look very soon at a study um, called something like, uh, would you approve of the way that Jesus would run his kingdom? which is very challenging. Um, And we'll look at how certain people in the Bible didn't like what was going on, didn't seem to yield to it very well. And um, again, there was just so, so much more that I'd like like to get into. So uh, I'll cut this off for here. We'll see what I do next, but it won't be long until I get into also the baptism of the Holy Spirit, baptism into Jesus' name, and then Jesus' uh, brief... um, use of baptism as figurative for some sort of suffering or ordeal that he had to undergo. So that's it for now. Thanks for joining in. Thank you.